0: and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Thank you.
1: In the movie 1917, I don't know if you've seen it, Will Schofield, at the start of that movie, is given a message. He's given a, a, an, an important message to pass on. He's, his job is a runner. He just takes messages to different parts of, of the front line. And he's given a message because aerial reconnaissance has come in. And a planned attack at a different part of the front line is going to be walking into a trap. Now, with that information, with that truth, with what they have found out, Will Schofield is handed that message. He's to take that message and over the course of 24 hours, get to that part of the front line to warn those soldiers who are about to go over the top, who are about to walk into that trap, who are about to head into their death. And actually, uh, he goes with a buddy, and it's the brother of one of his buddies they discover is also part of that, part of that. So, so that wraps into the tension of what's going on. And he's there, we track him over the course of those two days as we watch the movie, as he takes this message to tell them to turn back, to turn back that that's a trap, that way is death, turn back and be saved. And as he goes, as you can imagine, there's the ups and downs, the tension will the message get through. Sometimes the enemy tries to stop him. Sometimes people who should be on his side don't believe him. But we track him over the two days as he takes that message, turn back. That way is death. Turn back and be saved. Well, that... um, Responsibility given to Will Schofield in the movie 1917 is a bit like what we've just heard the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy here in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because he hands Timothy this message. He, he, he says um, to Timothy um, about this message that he hands on. He says verse 14, as for you continue of what you have learned to chapter 4. Uh, verse 2, preach this word. He says, you've received it and now pass it on. And that message last week is, is a message we heard. It was a bit like that message that Will Schofield is entrusted with. Turn back. That word repent, don't you remember that from last week? That word meaning turn around, turn back, that way's death. Turn back and come to life. And Paul passes that message on to Timothy. And that message that Paul gives to Timothy is also a responsibility that each generation of the church carries to this day, to receive this message, to pass this message on. And just like we're watching the film, I guess in some ways this book of 2 Timothy carries that same sort of tension. Will the message get through? Will the message be heard? Will it be believed? Will enemy tries to stop? Will even people who should be on their own side not believe? And we're thinking over these um, last week, this week, and next week about how we as a church relate to the wider society, but also the group of churches around us. We belong to a group of churches called the Church of England or the Anglican Church of England, and how we relate to them, and particularly on the issue of uh, human sexuality and marriage. And last week, we heard the message that we get in the Bible, that call to all of us in the face of all our temptations and sin to turn back and know life and salvation in Jesus. But if last week we looked at the content of that message, this week we're going to look at the message itself, how we should handle the Bible, how we should hear the Bible and what some people might say about the Bible that might lead them to doubt it to change it, to twist it. So we're going to be looking at these verses, and particularly zooming in on the verses on the screen. I think their verses are 14 to 17 there, because there, if you have a look down with me, 14 to 17, we we hear about God's Word in in the Scriptures. We hear about these, um, these, these holy Scriptures, or these sacred writings, as they're called. And we see about the way these words bring salvation, that they save us, they're powerful to save. And why do they bring salvation? They bring salvation because they bring us to Jesus and they bring Jesus to us, the salvation in Jesus. But why can these words in the Bible bring us salvation in Jesus? Because they're not just human words, they're God's words, they're God-breathed, God's words to us. This is a message that saves us as it brings us Jesus, as God speaks to us with that message of Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, those characteristics of the Bible and how that should shape our attitude to it, that it is God speaking about Jesus to save us. That's, that's where we're going. Let's just take a look at those points just so we know where, where we're heading. What we're going to find out is the Bible is God speaking, uh, it's, the Bible is God speaking, and he's speaking about Jesus in order to save us, in order to bring us salvation. And for each of those truths about the Bible, we're going to see an implication of that. Okay? So it's, it's the Bible is God speaking about Jesus to save us. If it's God speaking, well, then that means, as we're going to see, that the Bible is personal. And if it's God speaking about Jesus, well, if it's about Jesus, that means it's God's final word. And if it's to bring us salvation, well, it's a powerful word. Don't worry. You don't have to remember all of these. I'm just laying out the terrain so we know where we're heading. Those are the truths, and that's the implication. So let's just take a look at that first truth that we find, that the Bible, as we open the Bible, it is God speaking. So again, um, in in 2 Timothy chapter 3, just look at the way uh, the Bible's described there in, in verse 16. That all Scripture, it says, is breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. All Scripture, that means the Bible, is breathed out by God. The words that we have written down here are words that God has breathed out. Just like our breath carries our voice, God's breath brings us these words. <laughs> Just as, you know, I don't, you, you could feel the breath of someone on your cheek as you speak to them. You can feel their breath as they speak to you. In the same way, we feel the breath of life, the breath of God as we simply read, hear, listen to these words read and preached. We have the breath of life, the breath of God, in these words on the page. Now, each time, each time we look at these different characteristics of the Bible, we're going to see three kind of things of the way the Bible might be misunderstood. Three different things: the Bible is not okay. So, the Bible is not a box of heroes. We're going to find out the Bible is not a tea bag, and the Bible is not plasticine. Okay pay attention to find out why it's not each of those things but first of all so we've just heard that the bible is not is is god's breath okay that means it is God's word, and the way this can often be misunderstood is that some people think the Bible contains God's word, right? That it contains God's word. A bit like you open your heroes, and actually, you do want the heroes. You don't want everything in there. You want to go, well, some anarchist. Do you know some people do this? They put the wrapper back in. Some, you know who you are. Please stop. So you've got to dig around, and you take that out, and it might be saying, okay, I look in the Bible, I dig around, and I go... I don't like the bit that speaks of judgment, so I need to clear out that. And then I get a nice bit that's about love, right? And I see that nice bit about love, but I don't really like the way the cultural kind of the cultural time. So I've got to take that out, and now I have my chocolate, and I can, I can, I can separate it out. You guys think I'm going to be throwing chocolates out. I'm not. <laughs> okay? But you can understand that dynamic. I've got to root around. I reject some stuff. That's a dinky double-deck. No one likes that. But even the stuff I take, I have to unwrap to go find what the good stuff is on the inside. That is treating the Bible as if it is a box of heroes. And the Bible is not a box of heroes. It's the word of a personal God speaking to us. It does not contain God's word. It is God's word. It's not a chocolate to be unwrapped. It is a person to listen to. And so we don't need to unwrap it and work out what to listen to. It's not for us to decide which bit to keep, like I've just done, and which bit to toss aside. It is not up to us to judge it, to revise it. Instead, our responsibility is to receive it, and as we receive it, so to preach it. In a couple of weeks' time, um, the bishop who is um, responsible for the local group of churches, that, that, that we're part of here, um, he'll, uh, there'll be a service in which I'm kind of officially licensed. Sort of, he, he says, yep, this person is set aside for the role of teaching God's Word. Now, I'm someone who's been ordained, and I had to make promises about my role as a pastor, and just listen to what I was told about my role, what Matt was told about his role when he was ordained, by, by, and what the bishop was told about his role when he was ordained. He says this, Um, In the liturgy, priests are called to be servants and shepherds among the people to whom they are sent with the bishop and fellow ministers. They are to proclaim the word of God. And and how do they do that? They're to be messengers, watchmen, stewards of the Lord. They are to teach and to admonish, to feed and provide for the family, to search for God's children in the wilderness of this world's temptation, to guide them through its confusions that they may be saved through Christ forever formed by the Word, they are to call their heroes, hearers, sorry, I'm thinking of chocolates, right? (laughs) That is very much not what it is. They are to call the hearers to repentance and to declare in Christ's name the forgiveness of sins, absolution and forgiveness of sins. Do you hear the way the Word drives everything there? That that ministry is a ministry of a Word, not picking and choosing, not judging standing over not revising but receiving and so preaching that's what I promised I'd do that's what Matt promised he would do that's what the bishop promised he would do and in a couple of weeks time we'll come and license and officially say yeah that's what we want Luke to be able to do in this in this church community but here's the thing in the current discussion about sex gender and marriage in our church at the moment There's a lot of confusion. There is treating the Bible as if it was a box of heroes or a box of celebrations or something. You see, there is a clear message throughout the Bible that says that sexual intimacy is for one man and one woman for life. And all other expressions of sexual intimacy, casual sex, um, polygamous marriage, homosexual marriage, all other expressions of sexual intimacy apart from one man, one woman, for life, that all of those the Bible describes as sin, and like we heard last week, calls us back to Jesus in repentance. Now, unfortunately, some leaders of our group of churches, the Anglican Church, um, say they want to tweak that and want to revise that, want to treat the Bible as if it's like a box of chocolates. So there's a bishop, Bishop of Oxford. He's, um, he's both a very prominent bishop and leader amongst our group of churches, and he's also written a document that kind of sets out how the Church of England is, is proposing to change. And he says this. He, he, he quotes what Paul says in Romans 1. We're not going to dig into that. You, you can see it's Romans 1, 26. And he says basically what Christians have said throughout um, throughout the history of the church, um, uh, Bishop Stephen he, he acknowledges he says this here. Paul refers unambiguously to same-sex relationships between both men and women and describes them as an outworking of sin, judgment in the un- universal human condition. He says the unambiguous teaching of the Bible is that a relationship outside marriage is sin. That's what he says. And yet he goes on to say that we must move on. He says, well, maybe we have new ideas now. Maybe we have new understanding now that justifies a revision of the doctrine and the teaching of the church. He's just said the church, he's just said the Bible unambiguously teaches something. And then he turns around and says, well, what we really need to do is take away the bits we don't like to keep the bits we do like and stick to those. Do you see the way that's treating the Bible as if it contains not God's word? As instead of seeing the Bible as God's word. I would hate for someone to treat me when I'm talking like that. Luke, you said you liked your coffee black. But I don't really like coffee black and I think that's crazy. Here's your coffee with milk. So, I mean, it's a silly example But you can imagine how rude that would begin to get if you kept going, if you kept listening to people's words like that. But here's, so here's the thing. Treating the Bible like a packet of sweets or taking a principle from the text, that is refusing to hear the Bible as God's personal word. You see, when we change our teaching about sex and marriage, we aren't just changing our teaching about sex and marriage. We are changing what we're saying about the Bible. And if we change what we're saying about the Bible, we are changing what we're saying about God. We are saying we do not have a God that speaks with authority and clarity. We are saying we have a God whose words need to be unwrapped, need to be figured out, need to be revised and picked between and changed. You don't just have a different doctrine of marriage and and relationships, you have a different doctrine of the Bible, and worse than that, you basically have a different God which is why, as a church, well, really the first thing we need to do as we, as we seek to respond is to do what Paul called Timothy to do. Teach the Word. Teach the Word. Not pick and choose and unwrap and see what it might contain, but receive and preach. And once we recognize that the Bible, that the, that the Bible is God's Word, once we hear it for what it is, well, then we'll be able to hear what it's saying, which, which is sort of the kind of second characteristic of what, of what we're finding out about the Bible from these verses. So come back to, uh, with me to uh, um, 2 Timothy 3, because it describes this Bible is God's Word, but what is God speaking about? We'll look at the end of verse, um, verse 15, proclaiming to us Christ Jesus, this word of God is about Christ Jesus. This is God speaking about Jesus, seeking to bring us to faith in Jesus. God's word brings us Jesus. It's a bit like what we heard last week when we heard Jesus' message to repent. The Jesus' Jesus's message to repent, he said, Look, I'm here, I'm the king, I'm bringing the kingdom. Repent and believe the good news. So if we um, just jump to the next slide. The the, the Bible is God speaking about Jesus, which means it's God's final word. This is God's word that brings us Jesus. It's God's word about God's work. And just listen to the way this passage, I'm going to read it if you can't see it on the screen, but Hebrews 1, for those who want to turn to it, um, is page 1203. Um, Just listen to the way these verses bind together, weave together, Jesus' final words and Jesus' glorious finished work. It says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Do you see that? A final word. Spoken many different ways, but now, final word in Jesus' son. Why? Why do we now have this final, complete, finished Word? Because His finished work. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the power of His Word, and after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There may be all kinds of details there that we struggle to catch on its way past, But what I hope we can hear is the way the finished work of Jesus and the final word of God go together. Just as Jesus is glorified for having completed this work of salvation, this finished work, so the Bible is honored and listened to as it brings us the final word about that finished work. Now I think... um, one of the ways that we can, uh, another way that we can misunderstand. So we decide, okay, the Bible is not um, a box of chocolates. We can think that the Bible instead is like a tea bag. Okay, you might say, okay, I would like a cup of tea. And, or I'd like some tea. And, you know, you might want to pull something out and go, okay, then here. So we go, well, I'm giving you tea. This, I mean, is this or is this not tea? Well, Yeah, it's tea. But really, what's the issue with the tea bag? We're not really ready for our cup of tea yet, do we? We need our milk. And we need a hot water, depending on which order you put those things into the cup. But basically, the tea bag is pretty important. It's pretty central, but it doesn't stand on its own. To really have my cup of tea, I need. This is profound, isn't it? I need water, and I need milk, and maybe sugar or what else, uh, whatever else that, um, you might want to mix in. It's one ingredient. It's just the first little step. In the same way, people go, the Bible is a bit like a cup, a bit like a tea bag. Like it's pretty important. It's pretty central. You wouldn't just have it on your own, on its own. You need a bit of like reason or my experience. Oh, I couldn't just have the Bible on its own. I need the culture around me. In the same way this tea bag can't really bring me tea, this Bible doesn't bring me God's word until and unless I listen out to the culture around me, or I look at my heart and my experience deep inside me. That is a misunderstanding, so I'm going to make that clear, put that in the bin there. The Bible is not one ingredient among many. It is not the starting point of a journey. It does not set a trajectory. It is the final word through which we encounter the finished work of Jesus. And again, I think we see this misunderstanding. We see this treatment of the Bible a bit like a teabag in uh, the writing of, um, of, of Bishop Seaman. I think, I think, is there a quote that can come up on the screen here? That's probably coming across um, really uh, um, small, but, but I'll, just, I'll just read it out. It, it just says, an increase in knowledge and understanding in the culture around us leads us to a revising, a revisiting, a reframing of our ethical frameworks. Okay, do you see that? So I need the culture around me so the Bible, like a tea bag, needs I don't know the hot water or the milk or whatever it is of the culture around me. It's not finished. It's one ingredient. It's it's not the finished word. It's instead the starting point. But you see. The message about Jesus, um, what, what we see in these current discussions about sex, gender, and marriage is, is treating the Bible as if it's just one ingredient among many. You see, the thing is, in the Bible, not only is the Bible clear that sexual intimacy is for one man and one woman for life, that single, that single vision is woven throughout Scripture and it's woven throughout Scripture to show us Jesus so that we might understand His person and His glorious finished work. You see, we'll spend more time reflecting on this next week, but from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2, the first marriage in Genesis 2, through to through, going through the Bible in, in Ephesians 5. That says that marriage was and was always to be a picture of the Lord Jesus bringing a people to himself. Right through to the last chapters of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22 where we see the glorious reality to which marriage points. From first to last page of the Bible. The Bible not only has a single vision for sexual intimacy, that single vision of sexual intimacy is woven together to show us Christ, which means to have a different vision of sexual intimacy is to have a different vision of Christ, to tweak, to change to add to, to take away from this story about sexual intimacy is to tweak, to change, to add to, to take away from this story about Jesus. Which means that our responsibility as a church then, it's so important that our responsibility as a church is not just to keep proclaiming the truth, but actually we need to contend for the truth we need to hold out such is the centrality of the story of sexuality to the bible such is the centrality of the story of sexuality to the way the bible presents jesus and the offer of life in him that that to abandon that message about jesus is to that message about sexuality is to depart from that teaching about christ and so when others have departed from that image about Christ, when others are effectively proclaiming a different Jesus, we need to make that clear. We must show them what they are doing, and we must call them back. I mean, it might be one way, one way to do that, a kind of simple way. You might think, well, how can, how can I, as just an ordinary person, Um, do that there's actually a petition that someone that that we that we could sign if you could just find the CEEC website and the um, uh, the the, it's just declaration.ceec.info declaration.ceec.info you could just go on there and it's like a big petition just to say to the leadership of the Church of England please don't change your teaching on what the Bible says don't give up faithfulness to this vision that the Bible has about sexual intimacy, because if we change our vision of what, our, what the Bible says about this, we are changing our presentation of what the Bible says about Jesus. It's just one way uh, that, that one could do that. So we recognize the voice of God in the words of Scripture as we hear its message. And as we, as we hear that it's God speaking, as we hear that it's about Jesus, we hear it's God speaking, we hear that message, and as we begin to recognize that, then we can then finally see something and taste something of its power. You see, we've just heard that the Bible is about Jesus, that the Bible brings Jesus to us but it is God, God speaking about Jesus to save us. The Bible doesn't just bring Jesus to us gloriously and powerfully. The Bible works to bring us to Jesus. We can uh, see that in um, uh, 2 Timothy. Again, if you've um, closed your Bible so you lost your page like I have to uh, page 1199, it, it was there in verse um, Verse 15. Um, Paul exhorting Timothy to stick to the Bible, stay faithful to the Bible, these sacred writings, which it says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. These, These words make you, change you, shape you we we see that dynamic in, in the preaching of Jesus that we heard last week. I don't know if you remember Jesus speaks, repent and believe, and immediately as he speaks the disciples drop their nets, trot what they're doing and straight away come to him. They turn and they and they come to him. God, the Bible is God's powerful word. That word that spoke that made creation is a word is the same word that makes us wise for salvation. It brings us Jesus. It brings us to him, just like God spoke the world into being. He speaks to give us new life in the work of salvation. And so the Bible is not, is the final thing, it's not like a box of heroes that we pick and choose between. It's not like a tea bag that we need to add to. Finally, it's not like a pot of Play-Doh. See, the great thing, the reason we love play is we can squeeze it, we can fiddle it, we can leave our mark on it, we can shape it into all kinds of things. I can only shape it into a snake. That is all I can shape play into. There you go. That's as much as I do. But you can change it. You can shape it. And that is often how people treat the Bible. They say, here is a text that we can, that we can, um, that we can or we must shape that... that, that Um, I can can shape it with my desires or I shape it into, you know, the space, the the shape that society gives it or leaves space for around it to fit in with my desires or the culture around me. But the Bible is not to be reshaped to fit my desires or my context. Rather, the Bible shapes me. Who's making who? In 2 Timothy 3.15, the Bible, God's word, makes me, shapes me. Me, it shapes me so that I love what God loves, that I long for what God longs for, that I repent and believe. Listen to how Paul in another part of the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, um, describes God's work in the Bible. He says, and again, sorry if it's a bit small there. But he, he, he says this, that uh, the Bible won't be shaped. God's word won't fit into what we expect. He says, look, the Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But those who are called both Jews and Gentiles, it is the power of God. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says, look, our culture wants something intellectually impressive, our culture wants something spiritually satisfying. If he was writing in our day, he might say, "Our culture wants something emotionally affirming." He says, "You know what? As I preach Christ, as I preach the Bible, it's weak. It's, it's, foolish. It's unsettling. But this same message that to our culture seems weak, foolish, and unsettling, is a message that is wisdom, that is power." and that truly proclaims to us God's love. It is actually God's work to bring us to Jesus. You see, in these current discussions about, um, about sexuality and marriage, we need to recognize that not just does the Bible speak with a single voice about this, and it speaks with that single voice about this to bring us a single vision of Jesus, it also speaks to us of the salvation found in Jesus, that those who are saved by the words of Jesus have lives transformed by the words of Jesus, and that life transformed by the words of Jesus takes shape according to the words of Jesus. And Paul, at the start of 1 Corinthians, describes that power of God's Word. He then describes to the church itself in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 onwards, he describes, he says, you guys know the kind of power that God has been at work doing in our lives. So he says, look, don't you know that the unrighteous, this is 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, don't you know that the, uh, neither the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying these words begin... God's words, have you said, look, you don't remember your life, God's, Jesus' words. These words, however foolish, unsettling, and weak they may seem, they've changed you. They transform you, and this process has begun now and will continue throughout your life. Again, the uh, Bishop of Oxford, when he describes the moral vision of, of, um, of the Bible, he says, one of the issues we have is... This isn't just a fundamental disagreement, he says, about justice and fairness. He says this, we are seen to inhabit a different moral universe. That's a problem, he says, with the Corinth sticking to faithfully teaching what the Bible says. We are seen to inhabit a different moral universe, and Paul would say, yes, we live in a different moral universe to Corinth way back then. We live in a different moral universe to Bromley, to London, to England right now. You see, the Bishop of Oxford is treating the Bible as if it was a piece of plasticine or Play-Doh that needs to be reshaped around and within the moral universe in which we find ourselves. But Paul says, no, that Christians live in a different moral universe and Corinth around them than our culture around us this message is going to seem weak it's going to seem unsettling it's going to seem foolish but it is power it is wisdom and it is the truth of what love is and we can and we can encounter you see throughout throughout as, as Matt was sharing last week throughout history Christians have tried to shape the Bible and the message of the Bible within the shape of the, the culture around it. They've said greed is okay. They've said adultery isn't so bad that even something like pornography can, can, can have its place. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 is this teaching is not just false, it is deceptive. And it's not just deceptive, it is dangerous. It is dangerous because it affirms people in life and actions that God says has no place amongst his people. You see, if we change what the Bible says about sex and marriage, we are deceiving people. It becomes a different salvation, and it becomes a different gospel. Now our group of churches um, has said that it's not going to change the traditional teaching, the faithful teaching of the Bible, It said that it won't do that, and our bishop who is the charge of our local group of churches we're going to see in a couple of weeks' time, has said that he will make sure that there's no change, that he's keen for there to be no change in how the church has taught faithfully the Bible um, over time. But we must pray that those aren't just words, that those are convictions and commitments that shape this whole process. We need to be praying for that because It's not enough to just preach the truth, not enough to just contend for the truth, like we've said. We also need to distance ourselves from error. Distance ourselves from error. Because if someone is ending up preaching, like we've seen, a different word about a different Jesus and offering a different salvation, well, at the end of the day, they belong to a different church. They have left the church they have departed, they have separated, and we have a responsibility in love to them and to the watching world to make that departure clear. See, which is why if the leadership of the church end up agreeing with the proposals here, end up agreeing with the proposals that they've published, If they formally bless sexual intimacy outside of marriage then churches will need to distance themselves from that leadership and churches will need to distance themselves from institutions over which they have authority (laughs) it's going to look different for different churches it's going to happen at different times for different churches but if someone has departed To preach a different word about a different Jesus, offering a different salvation, they have departed to a different church. And in some way, if they do that, churches that have remained faithful will need to make that clear. So just to finish, just remember that guy, Will Schofield, 1917. He was given that message. He was given that message. In the final scene, you see him desperate. The the attack that he's trying to stop has begun, and men are beginning to pour out of the trenches and into no man's land. In the final dramatic scene, you see him running. He jumps over the top in order to run to where the generals are, and you see him with men going over the top, him sprinting across, desperate to pass on that message, saying, Turn back. Stop, turn back. And you know that the brother of that guy is there and you're desperate as you're watching him. Yes, I want you to bring that message. Want that message to get through, to be heard, to believe for them to turn back and be saved. The tragedy of this discussion that we're having in the Church of England at the moment is that the very people with the responsibility for passing on that message are the very people who are responsible for that message being doubted, misunderstood, and set aside. And so we need to remember what the Bible is, what it is we're holding in our hands, what it is we hear week by week, that this Bible, this message, it is God's word to us about Jesus that brings us salvation. It is personal, it is final, and it is powerful. And so let's pray that we as a church family, but that actually all the group of churches that we belong to, this Church of England, that we would be faithful to that charge that we heard read to us from 2 Timothy chapter four, where Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God, of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Let's pray we do that. Father God, thank you for this word that you speak to us, that comes to us with your breath, that brings to us your son, that so gives to us the Lord Jesus. Please would we, please would the churches around us that we're part of, faithfully preach this word so that many might know the salvation to be found in it. In Jesus' name. Amen.